Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and we'll be spending some time together over the next hour. I hope you had a wonderful Easter. I hope you had time to detox from our political circus that we, you know, when is the last time we had a day without a political scandal? So I really hope you put your phone and your Twitter away and just, you know, had some time to get some peace of mind. Um, on that note, I also know you're not doing a whole lot. We've got so many public holidays this, this sort of period that I know you're not doing much at work. So I hope you're spending that extra time, you know, hanging out with us. Um, anyway, just to jump into this, I am flying solo today, as you may notice. My comrade Greg Nicholson is not with us. Uh, he's also on an extended break, as I know a lot of you are. Um, so it'll just be me today. And we'll be chatting, um, you know, a bit further afield than we usually do. So a lot of our focus is usually South African, usually continental. And we're going a bit further afield to Australia um, and chatting a bit about a, you know, a sort of story and a racial legacy that's you know, perhaps not too different from ours at home. And be speaking to somebody a lot more knowledgeable than I am on these matters, a film director, TV director, producer, screenwriter, award-winning filmmaker, um, and an activist, I dare, I dare say. I'm not sure if she describes herself as that. Rachel Perkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I love that uh, great wrap-up you've given me. I have to come in here every day. <laughs> you can be complimentary to me. Make me feel better. This is your first time in the country, if I'm not wrong? That is correct. Uh, first time in South Africa, and I'm just so excited to be here. I can't sort of express how... What has taken you so long? How is this the first time, 2017, that you're here? I know, and I'm 47 years old. <laughs> it's it's a crime. I mean, it is far away from Australia, so it's not cheap to um, get here. That's my excuse, I suppose. But uh, we have followed, you know, in Australia, we've followed the, you know, the movement in South Africa and the politics here quite closely and uh so it's this it's been this place in in our imagination for so long uh talking as a you know an indigenous aboriginal person from australia so mm. it's just fascinating to finally be here um yes i mean when we we had the opportunity to chat to you you know we had to jump on it i mean just given how massive the conversation is is here at home about racial inequality and the in the past and how to you know sort of Figure out the future, yes. um, and the, and the, and the similarities and differences with the Australian story and your life as an indigenous, indigenous Australian from an activist family, if I, if I may say yes, so. Yes, yeah. And your long career making really powerful movies, uh, and, and not, not just movies, of course, but powerful content, if I may say, that, that inspires thinking and really challenges sort of the national, Conversation on yeah. different ways to grapple with this. Um, I should probably let you talk now. <laughs> well, you do describe yeah. it so well. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we have quite similar histories in, in some ways. Uh, Aboriginal people and, um, you know, the experience of being colonized is a global experience, isn't it? It has happened in America. It happened in Africa. It happened in Australia, much later, though, in Australia. So, uh, we have those similarities, I think, and issues about, um, race and color are still very much part of our country. Um, but also in our country, we've made enormous progress too with you know our sort of emancipation movement has been very successful in many mm. ways so um but you know as you said quite rightly we're still working out the future and what the future might be so it's at exciting times you know it's in it's a time of empowerment in australia and uh and it seems that way here as well so yeah 
Now I'm curious about you know sort of your sort of earlier days. I mean, your your father was a well-known activist, yes. Yes, he was. Yeah, and he was he was uh it was great to grow up in a in that household because mm. it was like all the political debate was part of our world, and we mm. were, you know, I grew up going to uh, protest marches, you know, and making placards, and you know, so that was sort of my life. Um, and I suppose it. Yeah, could you speak more about that? I'm curious. Was that was that purely local activism? Was that also sort of civil rights stuff from America or apartheid stuff? Or what what were those sort of early things you remember being a part of as a family? Well, it was very yeah. locally okay. based protest okay. um, because it was about the situation of Aboriginal people. But um, we often had um, international uh, people from South Africa. I couldn't name them. <laughs> I'm sorry, coming through our household, and uh, because uh, I lived in the capital, we lived in the capital um, because that's where the centre of government was and my father moved there to have influence on 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 the government in terms of Aboriginal people's rights. So, so it was a place where activists gathered to influence policy and fight for rights. So um, that's where I grew up and it was a very dynamic time because of course I'm 47 now as I said and so I grew up really in the 70s and 80s and that's when, you know, our movement really gained momentum you know, and we saw real change. So I think I suppose my filmmaking um, is an extension of that. You know, I feel like uh, I'm obligated in a way and, and, and motivated actually to continue the struggle um, to improve our country and, um, you know, keep the flame alive, I suppose, of <laughs> freedom and hope. I mean, that sounds like a, a lot of rhetoric, but um, it's, it's true, you know. You mentioned uh, the, the the ones you're not able to name the apartheid activists and perhaps leaders coming over to to speak on that side. Was was there a consciousness or strong consciousness of the anti-apartheid movement here and and, and the similarity between those two? Very things? much oh, yeah? so. So when the Springbok tour yeah. was on, uh, there was big protests in Australia. We shut down the matches. Um, and people, you know, we shut that down because people felt that we shouldn't be allowing uh, the South African rugby team to participate because of apartheid and, and we should show our support of the movement in South Africa. So people were on the streets in support of um, the anti-apartheid movement in Australia. Um, we were very conscious of um, that growing up, that apartheid existed and um, the great horror that that was um, for the world. So uh, there was a consciousness. And I think, you know, Australia is fairly isolated from mm. the rest of the world. And so we look to the movements in other continents so to inspire us. So certainly the... Um, the civil rights movement in America and the rights movement in South Africa were both guides for what we could do in our own country in terms of race relations and equality. We looked at your country and the US as models and also New Zealand as models uh, for what we could do. I, it's, I think it's really interesting you bring that up in that there's been a big conversation around the country over the past two or three weeks where there's a lot, there's a lot of discontentment on, on numerous things, mm. but there seems to be sort of us, us people feel a bit stuck there. It's like, and then what? You're frustrated, you're angry, perhaps you're disappointed with how things have turned out. Mm. So I'm really interested in that your step, perhaps early steps was to say, how do we learn from others and how they've created movements? And then, you know, how do we yes. do, you know, I, apply some I th lessons there? I think that's, I think that's good to see the lessons that others have, um, you know, or the experiences that, that others have uh, been through. And certainly 
uh, your example of um, friendship and democracy is uh, a wonderful a wonderful um, symbol for the world, I think, in how you can go from great hardship mm. and inequality uh, in a very short period of time through the process of democracy. Um, and I think, you know, the tension that you're experiencing now is all to do with the democratic process, it yeah. seems, from an outsider's point of view. Um, unfortunately for us, we have such a, you know, we are similar in so many ways, our mm. countries, but so different because the uh, say the indigenous um, population in Australia, we're only 3% of the population. So in a way, democracy doesn't work for us. Um, I mean, it's a great institution, democracy, and it's a fabulous world order, and we support it. But to have influence in government, we have no power because we only have 3%. So we can't, you know, it's not like we can bring change government with our, with our vote. So we have to use other means. And in that way, we're very different from here. Um, so we're only 400,000 people. We're niche, niche, a tiny population. Mm. Um, so that creates a political, you know, we have to be very politically savvy to work out how we will influence change. And one of the things we're looking at at the moment is our constitution and how we can get our constitution to involve Indigenous people in the process of laws, lawmaking that affects us. Because at the moment, a law can be made about Aboriginal people specifically, mm. and we have no voice in that law, the content of it, what it, its effects, legislation. So what we want to do is build into the uh, process of government mm. a place for Indigenous people so that we can comment at least on laws before they are made. And uh, we hope to have that referendum within the next six months. But whether the Australian people who will actually decide whether they will support us, we're not sure. So, you know, it's uh, it's about pushing for change in, in all sorts of ways, in, in the highest structural ways at the Constitution and then at very local level as well. You So you've said so many things that I want to jump into. So even the, the push to have specific inclusion of Indigenous Australians in laws concerning them needs to go through the, the a referendum. Which mm. leads you to the same problem of we, we are not enough exactly. to purely get out there and vote on matters that That's right. involve us. That's right. So yeah. the referendum we will have really very little say in. So is, yeah. Sorry, what what's been the response of, of government at least before you get to the referendum phase? Is there is there a strong feeling from your side that they're they're taking this really seriously and see yes. why it's important or is it more of an irritation? Yes. Than no, no, I think um they have been very supportive yeah. of the referendum, both both sides of uh the political you yeah. know, the major parties and they've both uh gone on record to say that they support some sort of recognition. The question is at what level that recognition will be. Will it be symbolic? So will they just mention us in the constitution and say that we are indigenous people and we lived here? Or will they give us a voice in the parliamentary process? So we have, we looked at other countries like Canada mm. and New Zealand in mm. this case, because they have both constitutional recognition and treaties as well. So, you know, it's a very interesting time for us, but we have a very liberal government. You know, we're very lucky in Australia. We have a good, solid democratic process. We respect that democracy. It's worked for a very long time. Um, it's made us a very peaceful nation. And, um, you know, that's, that's th- something we don't take for granted. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a bit surprised. Perhaps I'm used to a sort of activism in different areas that's a lot more, has a lot of a more confrontational relationship with the state. And I'm curious as to whether you found 
either now, you know, through your career, attention and working with government and saying, yes, but, you know, they're liberal and they're, you know, doing yes. important things like you've mentioned. But at the same time, this is the same state and the same body that has, yes, that continues in a lot of ways to allow structural inequalities. Mm. Um, is, is there a tension there of saying, I'm working, I'm working with the people who allow you know, really horrendous things to take place now or who have perpetuated those horrendous things in the past? Well, yes, I think uh, there has definitely been horrendous things in our past and you can list them and they are on record and they are well known. You know, we've had our children removed over multiple generations. We've had our land taken from us. We have been, we've had a segregated society um, and we've been discriminated against. We've been unable to vote. We've been excluded from the constitution. There is a litany of things that you could describe. But since the mid-1960s, we have had incredible progress on many fronts. We have had land rights legislation introduced in most states. We have heritage legislation that protects in some ways our culture. Uh, we have had um, the universities open up to us. We've had got more university graduates than we've ever had before. We now have a national Indigenous television service. We have people like me who are funded by the government to make films about our past, about critical parts of our history. Uh, we have a national curriculum in our schools that includes Indigenous history and culture as one of its key subjects. So I think, you know, for me, I am a pragmatic person and a realist. Mm. You know, I've seen the change that we have won through activism and we need to appreciate the progress we have made as well as acknowledge, you know, what we still have to put attention to. But those things that we have to put attention to now are inherited historical uh, poverty and racism. So we have a society, our Aboriginal people are at the bottom level on all social sort of Indicators. Indicators, yeah. exactly. So we have lower education standards, we have worse health standards, we have more poverty and higher unemployment than any other group in Australia. So, but that is not a legislative government policy that is inherited structural historical situation. Yeah. And now it is a challenge for us to emancipate ourselves from this situation. And we can do that through wealth creation, education, you know, government support. Um, and we're very clear about that, um, that that is the agenda, empowerment, economic development, education. Those are the things that we seek. I, I'm astounded by just your sense of context and, and, and sort of progress. And sometimes it'd be, I think Obama would always say sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back and you just gotta. You, it's you know, a long game, I think. Going. It's a long game. Yeah. But I think, you know, we have to, particularly, I think, coming to Africa yeah. and seeing the, and I'm only just arrived, so it would be inappropriate for me to make any wide sweeping observations. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we have great privilege in Australia. We have great freedoms. Um, you know, for example, I'm funded to be here by the Australian government to show films that are critical about Australia's history and mm. past. Um, and and I'm, I'm here talking to you with great freedom, and I know that I will not be imprisoned, criticised, you know, by doing that. I have a freedom of speech, and that is something that's very important, So, and I don't take it for granted. And so it would be wrong for me to condemn my country uh, because actually we're quite progressive in many ways. I hear you. 
Um, going back to sort of your <laughs> earlier sort of history and journey, um, it sounds like you were very early on pretty conscious of of the the state of Indigenous Australian rights and sort of perhaps global racial movements. But I'm I'm curious of you as an individual and whether you have any recollection of when you first individualized this and had a sense of as being an indigenous indigenous Australian, my life is fundamentally different personally and realized that, you know, this is, this is, this is a thing. It's not an idea. <laughs> this is a thing. <laughs> this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, we've yeah. always grown up, you know, cause I was brought up in a very political family. Okay. So our identity was central okay. to our existence. It, my, my mother is white and, uh, she would always say to us, you always put your aboriginality first. Okay. That's the first thing you identify with because you must be proud of your heritage because others, you know, have not been or are unable to be or, yeah. you know, have fought for that. So you always put that forward first. So it's never been a question okay. for, for me. I think probably looking at me, you know, like I'm fairly fair skinned, people would think, you know, well, why she doesn't have to identify as an Aboriginal person? You know, she could pass, if you like, yeah, as sure. anything, you know, Italian, yeah. Egyptian, whatever. Run with me. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's not like I'm really black, dark yeah. skinned, you yeah. know, so, um, but uh, it's not about the colour of your skin, of course. It's about your understanding and self-identity yeah. and your experience, I think. Okay. But, um, yeah, so it's yeah. always been a part. Okay. I mean, I, I hope that um, for my children and mm. their children, it doesn't have to be this great issue or great burden. Mm. I feel in some ways it is a burden, yeah. but a good burden. <laughs> and why filmmaking? I can imagine being from an activist family, there were sort of infinite... Ways you could sort of grapple with on 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 pushing for sort of a more equal society. So I'm curious about why why this particular path. Well, that's a good question. I mean, the thing is, uh, being from a political family, I saw the cost of politics and being in the public eye, and the sacrifice, and I felt that I did not have the critical the ability to withstand a public life in that way. Um, it's very difficult. People always criticize those leaders, don't they? When you put yourself up for, in a leadership position, yeah. naturally what comes with that is a, a whole lot of criticism from your own people, mm. from, you know, the, the people who don't support you. So I, I felt I've never been cut out for that. And I don't okay. think I'm a leader in that way. I think leadership is a, has a certain quality. You have to have a p certain personal quality for that. And I don't have that. Um, but filmmaking, I just fell into. Luckily, um, I, it's part of that, uh, the self-determination movement that came mm. in the 1980s. Mm. Um, Aboriginal people organised uh, opportunities funded by the government for Indigenous people to take jobs in the media because no Indigenous people had any jobs in the media. Before I started making films, there's only one Indigenous filmmaker ever. So, um, so it was a deliberate strategy by the activists that went before me to create these opportunities for Aboriginal people to get into the media so that we could take control of the images and the stories that were told about us and tell our own stories. So I luckily got this traineeship, um, in, in right in the heart of the country in Alice Springs, which is where I'm from. And I'd moved back there to sort of connect with my culture because I'd grown up in the capital away mm. from my sort of tribe, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I luckily got this traineeship and, and ever since then, that was 18, that was when I was 18, so I'm 47 now. So whatever, what did they do the maths on that? So That's no. like nearly 30 years or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really want to think about how long so, it is. Yeah, let's, <laughs> jump over that. yeah. So, um, but look, filmmaking is a wonderful medium because it 
reaches millions of people. And I think it can affect people in a way that politics sometimes can't. You know, if you tell a great story, it can affect people. It can move them emotionally. They can walk in another person's shoes. They can understand something from someone's point of view that they would have never understood before. And that's the power of film. You know, when you watch a movie, you suddenly are in that person's worldview. So for Aboriginal people to be able to put, to give Australians some perspective about our experience mm. and the way we see things is a wonderful thing. And to go into people's lounge rooms, you know, through the television and expose them to that is a gift. You know, it's a great, great strategy. <laughs> And I'm, I'm curious about some of your, your early work, if you could think back. And I can, I, I, I can't, I could imagine that there may be a balance between doing the stories justice and the culture justice and having it be entertaining and, and palatable yes. to yes. A, a national audience, perhaps even a global audience. And I'm curious about how you grappled with that, especially in the early days. Yeah. No, look, it's always a challenge because. I've, I've, the early films I made, no one watched. And I thought, why am I working so hard? <laughs> and no one is not having any impact. Yeah. You know, I thought, if I really want to have an impact, if that's what I'm really serious about, I need to make stuff that can cut through to the mainstream audiences. So that, that was a really, uh, defined framework for me mm. about, the films I made. So, so for example, the first big television series I did was called First Australians, and it presented a history of Indigenous people from just before colonisation through to getting our first sort of recognition of native title in 1993. So it covered about a 200-year period. And that is a really, you know, some of that history is very grim. That's a massive project. Also. Massive project. It took us six years. We thought it would take us two, and it took six, so... Anyway, we had to get it right. But so we looked at this very grim history and we thought, mm. how can we, because if we just show people this horror, they're not going to watch. It's just going to be too hard for them. So we decided to tell within the horror one great story about a great person who, and, and a non-Indigenous person often, who had done something wonderful, who had been exceptional. And we realised through doing that, people had a model. So it wasn't like all these white people did terrible things. It was like, yes, this terrible stuff happened, but then there was this exceptional white person who made a friendship and changed the course of events and was great, you know, with his Aboriginal friends, colleagues, whatever. And um, in that, people found a sort of a hero to and, and a model for like, this is how we could be. Why shouldn't we should be like this? It was like aspirational. So, I mean, I know that sounds a bit, strange but you do have to reach an audience and by providing some models for people who behaved well and good that gives people hope rather than just giving them the misery because it's easy to just give them mm. the misery you know it's all there <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a tough choice just your that model or approach to to writing those those scripts and telling those stories and i can imagine that being a tough pill to swallow for some people in that you're taking this horrific thing and you're still well, giving we, people an out, an emotional out. No, we a, didn't give them an out. Saying, this Not is at one all. lovely person who's amazing. We didn't give them an out. Okay. We had lots of bad guys, okay. you know, <laughs> because obviously there's lots of bad guys. Okay. So let, let me give you an example. Please. So in the early settlement of Australia in New South Wales, yeah. um, people just took over the land pretty much and Aboriginal people were mostly removed from it um, and there was a warfare, right? But in this one case... There was this one white guy who made a friendship with this warrior and they became great friends. And he 
um, made a peace with this guy. And he, this warrior is buried on the sort of third generation land and it's become this family story. I'm not really telling the story actually very well at all, but there are these glimmers of hope. And I think you've got to clutch onto those glimmers of hope, you know, because that's what's great about humanity. It's an, it can sometimes triumph and out of history, there are these exceptional people who choose to be good, to be good mm. rather than go with the general consensus. Um, so we definitely didn't let anyone off the hook, I can tell you that. That wasn't our mission, but yeah. it was to give people hope. What does the the community engagement aspect of a project like that look like and 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 how was it received? Well, that's an interesting question. It was a massively uh comprehensive engagement process we had. So, because we were telling community stories, mm. histories of these people, we uh gave the scripts to the community at all stages. So they read the scripts, they fed back on all of the scripts, they saw rough cuts and fine cuts, and they had approval over that. We also showed the scripts to the leading historians um, who went over it with a fine-tooth comb because we knew this was the first comprehensive documentary series showing the history of Indigenous Australians. So we knew we would be attacked and undermined. So our facts had to be absolutely bulletproof because we knew the the critics would come for us, and they did. So uh, our process was incredibly comprehensive, which is why it took six years. So everyone had sign-off on the films. The community people had sign-off on the films. And and then it was shown, and it was a watershed moment. Um, People – it's gone into every school in Australia now. Wow. It's the highest-selling educational DVD in the history of Australia. Um, it was called the documentary series of the decade. It won all of these awards. And I'm not saying that just to sort of say I'm fabulous. What I'm, what I'm saying it for is that our country was ready to hear this history and it, it worked. You know, it worked for them. It got to the audience that we wanted it to. And now we know that every young Australian is watching this television series and it will change the way they think about their nation and the Aboriginal, you know, story of our nation. It will completely change their view. And that is why I make these films, because you can impact. You know, I know that millions of Australians will see that film. It's great. Congratulations. <laughs> no, it's that great. Is, I mean, you know, know. Very late. Congratulations. But congratulations. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, not a the, person no, listening the, to this things you're showing off or writing. No, no like you this. may. I mean, no, I think no one I, is. I think the important thing no to know is. about this is that because when I grew up, I was never taught anything in school about yeah. Aboriginal history at all. So, and and many people weren't of my generation. So, so that is why uh, we made this series. You know, um, because there was nothing, nothing like it, nothing available. When you describe that six years, sounds like a bargain. Like six <laughs> years for you know one of the most powerful. It sounds like projects that have come out of film in Australia ever. Well, look, that's, I, I that's, say that, but yeah. um, but others would have a different sure. view. Others would have a different view. Sure. I mean, I've got a very skewed perspective. You know. Ah. <laughs> now I know I'm jumping back and forth in the story, but I'm curious about you. F- Founding your company, it's Blackfellow Films, if I've got that right. Yes. Okay. And I'm, 
I'd just like to jump into the your journey to deciding, you know what, we have to start our own thing. And, yes, yeah. And, and, and how important it's been for you to, to sort of own and control your work from that perspective. Yes, well, it might be controversial to say that. I've, I'm, as a recent arrival yeah. in South Africa, I yeah. don't know what terms are acceptable, but… Can give it, a quick sense check. What are you? What are you? What are you, what are you, what are you not well, in Australia, concerned? Australia, we call you know we call ourselves blackfellas. Sure. You know, there's no one word that describes Indigenous people okay. apart from Aboriginal or Indigenous. indigenous so, so this blackfellas is sort of like you know uh, sort of a uh, uh, sort of a. A familiar term that okay, we, that so we a use. Controversial title at the time. And yeah, yeah, but it, okay. like it's fine for us to use sure, it, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so but we wanted yeah. to brand ourselves as yeah. absolutely no one would be confused. This is our reason for existence. We're here to make black stories, and they're by us and they're about us. Nice. Um, so I had worked at the like your equivalent of the SABC, yeah. the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I'd worked at the – we also have a multicultural channel. I'd worked at both those channels as an executive producer, and I'd found it very dissatisfying because they just wanted us to make certain programs, which is like mm. Happy Aborigines, Here We Are, Progressing, you know, nothing controversial, nothing too interesting, nothing with big budgets, nothing, you know, no drama, just sort of these factual little documentaries mm. about successful Aborigines. And yeah. that was just not the canvas that I wanted to – paint on. Um, so we formed an independent company and um, yes, it's been running ever since, uh, 25 years or something. But um, the model that I looked to for the formation of that company was Spike Lee's company, the American, African-American director, um, because he had set up a company called 40 Acres and a Mule, which of course is what uh, the slaves were promised yeah. when they would come to America. And it, it sort of, and he was so... Uh, you know, inf- it was such a great influence on my life at that time because there weren't other significant uh, directors of colour working in the world and he'd also sort of just so embraced his identity and, you know, and was sort of laying it all out there whether people liked it or not. And I really liked the sort of um, forward thinking. So, yeah, we have sort of took him as a bit of a model. Um, yeah, and so it's great being independent and we do have – it means that we can make the films we want to do yeah. and um, we've been doing so really successfully. In fact, now we're starting to make programs that are not about Aboriginal people. <laughs> Crazily, <laughs> for the first time ever, yeah. it's like, whoa, this is this is an interesting departure. Um, I can imagine a lot of challenges with setting up your own thing. Were there any issues with with finding the money to make the kind of quality you wanted, or perhaps people being scared of the of the controversy that may accompany either the name or the content, and just being like, yeah, we don't want any trouble. Like, yeah, kind of just yeah, this whole black fella thing. But yeah. <laughs> Let's let's tone it down a bit. Were there any challenges in the early years that you can? You know, I mean, uh, there were some challenges, but I think the challenges were due to our inexperience because we um, we hadn't made you know television drama. We hadn't we hadn't had those opportunities before, so we were learning and uh, and but the thing that we did, we got very organised. Uh, so Aboriginal filmmakers got together and we lobbied government and we set up organizations that would uh, lobby the funding uh, organizations and we demanded to have a part of the, you know, the pie because all, you know, in Australia we're lucky the federal government funds to a large degree, $600 million a year, they put into uh Film and television, mm. plus they then fund also our Australian Broadcasting Corporation mm. to another $700 million a year. So we invest in, you know, Australian culture yeah. through film and television. Yeah. Um, and so Indigenous people were like, 
we want a part of this, you know. Why aren't we included in this sort of cultural funding? We we should have a corridor on which we get access to these funds. So there was a bit of table banging and um, ingratiating ourselves. And uh, so we set up initiatives to to um, for filmmakers to make their first short drama. So I set up and financed the first drama initiative to enable Indigenous filmmakers to make short drama films. And then we set up a longer initiative to make half-hour films. And then we set up a feature fund for Indigenous filmmakers. And now we have... So when I started, there'd only been one movie made by an Indigenous person. Now there's like at least 20 or more. And we're making television drama and it's at the top of its game. Like it's some of the best quality film and television is being made by Indigenous filmmakers. But that's taken 25 years or more, 30 years of sort of activism and organisation to get to that point. That sounds like such a... Speaking of models that people can learn from, I think your approach, that sounds like a fantastic model for young filmmakers who are really trying to get their stories. Yeah, it's it's a great model and we are... You, we're very proud of that. And yeah. in fact, you know, the Australian government is, you know, very, really proud of its cinema, indigenous mm. cinema industry. It's, it's like the crown jewels in, in, uh, our, in our output of Australian filmmaking. Like we are, when the New Zealanders hear about what we do and the American, Native Americans, the Maori and Native Americans are like, we want what you've got, you know? Um, so we do. So when you say, was it a struggle? Uh, it was in some ways, but actually, you know, we have a lot of privilege and we're well off country and we had lots of opportunities too. We just had to push to get them. Um, you're founding this company. I think it was about 92, 93. And if I'm not wrong, that was the same time as the, the Marble versus Queenland case around. And I'm curious if there's any link and does anything trigger anything on my first fishing for. Uh, no, you are very well informed. Yeah. Um, so maybe your listeners don't yeah, know please, about the Marble case. Great, yeah. yeah. So, so. In Australia, okay, this is a bit of a history lesson, so stand by for the rave. (laughs) So when our country was occupied by the Crown, um, they uh, announced that we were all British subjects and that all the lands um, were part of the British Crown and that no uh, Indigenous people had any rights to land. They called it a Latin term, terra nullius, which means land belonging to no one. Or, and it meant that they didn't acknowledge our land laws mm. or our social structures. So they said we had, didn't have the civilization that, um, determined that, uh, any sort of, um, attachment to land or, or, um, land tenure. They couldn't see that we had land tenure. So that was in 1788. There's obviously there was uh, frontier wars broke out of battles over land as happened in other colonized countries, um, and generally the la- they took about a hundred years for the for the continent to be fully occupied. Um, but so in the process, uh, in 1982, this man called Eddie Marbo from the Torres Strait, he learnt he assumed that the land was his, but he then found out that the government had rights to his land. Mm. Um, so he decided to take up a court case. Um, the court case took 10 years. It went through every all the levels of um, the judiciary in Australia until mm. in 1993, the High Court, similar to your High Court, um, uh, made the decision that um, there was a form of native title that did exist at the time of European occupation prior to and that it still existed. Um, so that was a 
another watershed moment really for, well, the watershed moment in Australia because suddenly this great lie that had been perpetrated against us had finally been overturned by, you know, by an act of um, the judiciary. So uh, it's a very profound um, court case in the sort of narrative of Australia and, but it, but the court case was preceded by a number of other court cases which had failed to get the court to recognise native title. So it changed the relationship profoundly between um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and our fellow Australians and in some ways has um, remedied the situation, although not entirely. So I decided to make a film about it. I'd made a documentary about it um, and I met the family through making the documentary mm-hmm. and then I said, well, this is the great untold story of Australia. Who was this man, Eddie Marbo? What drove him? What's behind him? Mm-hmm. And what was the sacrifice that he made to sustain this court case over so long? Um, so that's a film that's called Marbo and again, that's in every school in Australia now. So, you know, it's wonderful that people were like, what is Mabo? And now they know who the man was, the story behind the man and what he achieved. Have you found during the course of your career that there's this sort of back and forth between what plays out legislatively and socially and then you're like, oh, we should make a movie about that or we, well, that's that's, that conversation's old now. This is the new conversation. Do you find that there's this back and forth? Well, interestingly, I suppose, because as I mentioned earlier, that we weren't taught anything about Aboriginal history or culture. So I feel like over the last 25 years, I've been covering the ground that the education system didn't. You know, so I've been, you know, telling Indigenous histories, I've been explaining those high court cases. I've been covering all of this stuff that's missed out and unknown. And now I feel almost that I'm getting to a point where I will have told, you know, sufficiently these narratives that need to be told. Mm. I mean, I still have another series to make about the frontier wars, which aren't acknowledged in Australia. Um, and also the settlement in Sydney, the first, the occupation and settlement and what happened then. Um, but, you know, soon I will have traversed the course of stories that I felt were important to make. Um, and then I have to decide, well, what other things am I going to do? Um, uh, which is interesting. It's an interesting challenge for yeah. a person who's devoted their life to this, you know, narrative of Aboriginal Australia. What do you do when you've sort of, in some ways, I mean, of course, there's too many stories to tell and you never get sure. to do them all, but the big ones I feel like I've addressed. Yeah. Now, I mean, just on on the topic of how you view your work, I mean, you've mentioned... Uh, you've mentioned First Australians, you've mentioned uh, the Marble documentary and film. And I'm curious if there are other projects you've worked on, either series or film, that you think back to and you were like, that was something special, either because of how it was received or the process of creating it and anything else you want to jump into? Well, look, you know, I mean, that's... I feel just so privileged to have told these stories. Like, it's taken me all around the country. It's taken me here. You know, here I am sitting with you having a discussion in South Africa because I've made these films. So um, I feel like it's been incredibly special and all of the films I've learned so much about. And that's the great thing about filmmaking as it is in doing radio. I think, you know, you meet another guest and you get some other, you go Mm. into some other tangent which you don't know about. And so I feel like each of them are very special. But, you know, certainly... um, 
the recognition of my peers um, has been a wonderful thing. Seeing us all, because we grew up making films together in a way, the Indigenous filmmakers that I've worked with, and to see the recognition of them too, like on, at, on the red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival, you know, or winning, you know, the greatest box office of the year, you know, those sorts of achievement in others uh, feels to me like it's all been, you know, worth it. We've we set a goal and we've achieved it, and it's it's something that you can really celebrate. It's very tangible. Absolutely, and you also worked on a show called, I think, On First Contact, where it seems yes. it was a kind of home swap yeah. situation. Could you just talk more about that and, yeah. and how that played out? That that was quite yeah. a controversial show, okay? I can imagine. Because, like, if you make a program about yeah. racism, right? Yeah. Just say you said, okay, we're going to make a show about racism. Um, people would not watch it, right? People don't want to watch that stuff, really. You know, so we were like, how can we have this? And even First Australians, that show I mentioned yeah. that's done really well in schools, yeah. it didn't rate hugely. I mean, it rated well, but it didn't do, you know, huge, yeah. huge ratings. So we thought, how can we bring this question of racism and lack of understanding by our fellow Australians towards us? How can we bring that to national attention? And it was like, okay, well, what works? Reality television works. So we're going to do racism <laughs> in the reality television genre. So we took, uh, and, and it was based on this statistic that is 60% of Australians have never met an Aboriginal person. So they don't know much about us, right? So we're like, okay, let's take those people and introduce them to Aboriginal Australia. And so we had a range of people, all non-Indigenous people, with views from really uninformed, ignorant uh, and aggressive through to, oh, all Aboriginals are perfect spiritual beings who are connected to the land, you know. So they had all the stereotypes. And then we took them on like a 28-day tour and immersed them in Aboriginal Australia in some of the really hard hard um, social conditions mm. that we have, uh, you know, alcoholism, uh, overcrowding, poverty, um, but then took them on cultural experiences and ceremonies and hunting, so mm. a range of experiences. Anyway, it rated incredibly well like the highest rating for any sort of indigenous factual yeah. show ever. And um, it started this national conversation. Wow. And we were, you know, crucified by some indigenous people because, yeah. like, how could you do that, you know, show all those things? They called it, like, poverty porn, yeah. white people's poverty porn and Aboriginal yeah. people. And it's like, well, we wanted to start a national conversation. Yeah. We wanted to expose these people's ignorance. And we wanted to bring people together to see, you know, that, we're all human and understand each other. And uh, anyway, so we did two series of that. And uh, it rated incredibly well. Yep. And it was highly controversial. And we knew it would be. Okay. Yeah. Looking back, would you do anything differently on that? Um, no. Okay. I think, I mean, look, we faced a lot of criticism from some matter. indigenous quarters. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of indigenous people, they sort of, uh, are in this echo chamber on Facebook where, you know, they're not exposed to, you know, these other views. And it's, so it's like, okay, let's bring these other views yeah. to the table. Let's air these other views. And we know that what they're saying is not good, but we need to challenge what they're saying. So let's get these views out, get these racist views out, challenge them, show them for what they are, which is ignorance. You know, they're coming from a point of ignorance. And then we can move forward. Um, but pe pe some people didn't see it yeah, like no, that. Sometimes the job of artists to provoke, I suppose. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, speaking about sort of sort of legislative and governmental things that have played out over the past, you know, couple of decades. Um, in 2008, the then Prime Minister offered a formal apology yes. uh, for actions that the government had sort of been a part of mm. in regards to Indigenous Australians. And I, I'm just curious about how that played out for you as an individual, as an activist, and, and was that just, you know, rhetoric and, you know, you know, mm. oh, you apologize, that's wonderful. Yeah. Or was it really a really, you know, important thing that, that needed to happen? Yes, so I was there. I was in Parliament when he apologised because I went down for it and somehow I just got into the gallery and uh, so I was absolutely there. And uh, the apology was interesting because um, Kevin Rudd, the then Prime Minister, mm. did it and the opposition party didn't support the apology. And after Kevin Rudd had made the apology, the opposition leader then got up and said, yes, well, we should, you know, we know that Indigenous people, their children were removed, but also they have all these problems. They're, you know, alcoholism and domestic violence and blah, blah. It's like, hang on, it's not about that. Let's just focus on the issue of child removal that was systematic, that was your government structure that insisted on these policies over generations. Anyway, so look, the apology meant a lot to a lot of people um, who were removed. Members of my family were removed. It meant a lot to acknowledge it. Unfortunately, there's never been compensation for those people who've been removed. So um, there has been in some states or, or what you would call provinces, um, small amounts of money. Um, mm. But it's one thing to apologise, but then what are you going to do about it? So the government did set up then out of the report, they set up um, organisations which helped family find each other. That was one of the great things that came out of that process. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think in Australia we have – we've never had like a truth and – Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah. We, we have a policy of reconciliation, but it has no end. It just goes on. And, uh, and it, it, it started in 1988 yeah. and it's still going. It's never had a conclusion. And Indigenous people have never been able to testify and say, this is what happened what to happened, me. Yeah. You know, this is what's happened to us. This is so, you know, the people still feel that, um, they haven't been able to tell their story. I'm glad you brought up the sort of truth and reconciliation process. And I'm curious, just as we go into the last sort of portion of the show, as to what conversations are sort of most prominent in the Indigenous Australian sort of activism space. Mm. Um, is it pushing for things like a truth and reconciliation commission? Is it pushing for things like compensation? Is it, what, what, what are, what are things yeah. that are, are sort of on the forefront and sort mm -hmm. of fighting for attention of what, what happens next? Yes, there's a yeah. there's a very vigorous debate at the moment, and um, it is a two pronged debate: uh, constitutional recognition, yeah. um, which the government supports, so it's just the extent of the um, uh, change, the reform that is in in question, and two is treaty. So unlike uh, our counterparts in the U.S. and Canada and New Zealand, we never had a single treaty because the British Crown would not acknowledge us as a separate sovereign nation. So people talking about sovereignty um, 
and treaty and those things are hotly debated because we have a constitutional reform process underway. Mm. Um, there's been promises of a treaty made um, and then the government didn't deliver. They gave us reconciliation instead. So that's why I'm slightly cynical about that process. Yeah. Um, so those are, the, those are the hot issues. And it goes to people have suggested a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because of what we hear happen in South Africa. Yeah. Um, they've suggested um, anti-discrimination clause in the Constitution so that we can't have laws made that discriminate mm. against us again. Um, so there's a range of sort of um, requests, and those requests are about to be um, articulated. We've just been having national meetings across the country, and on the 24th and 25th of next month, we will all meet at Uluru, the big rock in the middle of Australia, <laughs> which people might have heard of. Yeah. Airs Rock, Uluru, it's called in our language. Um, we will meet there to decide our final position. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Daily Mavic Show on CliffCentral.com. That was us sitting down with award-winning Indigenous Australian filmmaker Rachel Perkins. If you're in Johannesburg, an amazing opportunity to see some of her work. Tomorrow, that's the 19th of April, she'll be having a free screening at the University of Johannesburg at 2pm. So head over to the UJ Library at 2pm. It'll be a completely free screening that'll be followed by a Q&A with Rachel as well as a panel discussion. Secondly, this weekend, that's the 22nd and 23rd of April, Saturday and Sunday, over at the Bioscope in Maboneng, She's curated the Storylines Film Festival. That basically has the best indigenous Australian film there is to see, which of course includes a lot of Rachel's work. It's going to be a fantastic opportunity to engage with powerful storytelling, especially in the midst of racial inequality, which I think we as South Africans could probably learn something from. Please head over there. That's UJ on the 19th, Bioscope on the 22nd and 23rd. Thanks for listening to this episode. Also a major thank you to Greg Nicholson, Rachel Perkins, of course, and to Larissa Subira and her team over the Australian High Commission for making this possible. See you next week, 1 to 2 p.m., same time, same place. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.